Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. Gastrointestinal complications are some of the more common symptoms experienced by PI patients across the spectrums of age and diagnosis. On this episode, Dr. Sarah C. Glover, professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi, takes part in a community Q&A regarding GI issues for individuals with PI. To hear more from Dr. Glover, be sure to visit our YouTube channel to watch her full presentation on this subject. You can find the link in the show's description. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this Q&A. Let's get started. We have over 200 questions, so there's no way we're going to be able to answer them all. I will try to get to the most broad questions I can in the amount of time that we have. As always, ask IDF. You can go to the website, submit your question, and we will help you get an answer. So with that, let's get started. I have several questions regarding how to find and have a conversation with a gastroenterologist who understands primary immunodeficiency. So how do you find one? And then what questions do you bring up? So I would say the first thing is, is I would look for the, the major academic medical center in your area. That's usually the best place to start. Um, it's imperfect. Um, and I, I, my, in my opinion, we need to train more um, PIDD woke um, gastroenterologists. Um, I'm trying to do that in the, the folks that I train. Um, but I think across the country, there are a number of people um, that, that have this expertise. And if they don't, hopefully they know how to get you to someone. Um, I think I would start off by... Um, the, the thing is, the thing is, you want to be very clear about what's, you know, what's happened to you, what's changed. Um, oftentimes, you'll have a diagnosis of primary immune deficiency before you, you go in. Um, most of the people, at least in this group, will have that. So it's not, you won't necessarily get diagnosed by the gastroenterologist, although occasionally that does happen. Um, but you want to be very clear, these are my symptoms. Um, and you know, make sure that they understand the literature. I think that um, paper that just came out um, in American Journal of Gastroenterology is quite nicely done on um, the GI, you know, GI evaluation of primary immune deficiencies. Um, Frank Ferre at, at Mayo did that paper. Um, so I can give you the link for that. Um, I'll give you the link to that, but I think it's quite nice. And it, so it's something that you can actually take to your gastroenterologist and say, I have CVID. These are the I'm experiencing a lot of these GI symptoms. Here's the the latest recommendations, you know, to help you and I navigate my care. And so, that would be wonderful yeah. because that's can, one of the questions we got is what yeah. can I take to my gastroenterologist yeah. who doesn't understand? 
Yeah, so this, and this is widely available to anybody who's a member of the American College of Gastroenterology. They, they can get access to this data. It's like, and I used some of this, the, the schematic I public, put it up towards the end was from that paper. It's quite nice. So. And we can include that in the email that all the attendees will be receiving. Yeah, so I'll, I'll send Perfect. you the link for that. And I can you my slides, so you should have them now. Perfect. Awesome. Are immune deficiencies causing people to acquire GI disorders? So like I said, you know, primary immune deficiencies change your immune response um, in your GI tract. So you have, you have immune cells in the GI tract that are supposed to help you maintain that, that, that relationship between the poop that's going through your GI tract or the bacteria that are there and the cells, the immune cells that are in the lamina propria. When you don't have, when you're missing some of the things, when you're missing IgA, when you don't have adequate um, IgG response that's there, when you have, you know, you don't have enough plasma cells that are making immunoglobulins in response to those bacteria and more of them make it across your gut barrier, um, that's a, that's a problem. So I would say the GI disease is, is usually caused by the primary immune deficiency. It's, it's what we call the inside out. So the inside problem is that you don't, you're not making enough antibodies and you're not, you don't have the cells there that are supposed to respond appropriately or they're there and they're just not doing their job. Thanks. I received a lot of questions about IG replacement therapy being the cause of GI issues. Do you see any correlation? Um, I would not say that that's necessarily true. I think what happens is you get IgG therapy and you have underlying, because all the other stuff has been going on, um, you get, you get focused on that. Like, you know, you're used to having your sinus infections and your lung infections and your skin infections. And suddenly you get on IgG replacement and those things aren't as much of a distraction. And you realize, oh my goodness, I have been having diarrhea six times a day, but I was so focused on these other things or getting antibiotics for these other things. So I thought it was that. And so I think what happens is, is it's not necessarily the IgG replacement. It's just the IgG replacement, like I said, is inadequate to take care of those things. And you need to have other interventions to take care of them. Okay. Somebody has asked, what is dysbiosis? Dysbiosis means that you have, that the bacteria in the gut are basically, there's kind of a normal balance of bacteria in the gut that you would expect. And without going into like the different phyla of bacteria that are there, they're supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to have these specific families that get along and they... But what happens when the gut barrier is disrupted, you get an overgrowth of certain bacteria um, that shouldn't necessarily be overgrown. So in other words, the, the families are getting, one family is sort of able to take over. And oftentimes when that happens, um, those, those specific bacteria um, lead to disruption of the gut barrier and um, can traffic across the gut barrier. Some colonoscopy questions. Yes. Should people continue to get them after the age of 70? It really depends on you. So there's a lot of very healthy 70 year olds, including my own mother, um, out there who are, you know, 
doing really well and are probably going to live to a hundred. So that, I think the guidelines are now 75 is the cutoff, you know, the cutoff, but you could still really have, you just need to have that discussion with your doctor and figure, you know, what is the risk benefit? If the risks outweigh the benefits, don't do it. If the benefits outweigh the risks, do do it. So it just depends on where you're at. Or if you're really symptomatic, if you're having like massive diarrhea and you have, you know, then it's worth it to do it and find that out and get treatment. So you're not miserable. Can you have severe abdominal pain with your PI and yet GI doctors miss signs of PI related GI issues when they do an EGD or a colonoscopy? Yes, because when you do an EGD and a colonoscopy, the EGD looks at the esophagus, stomach, small, you know, and the first part of the, in the duodenum really. Um, and then the colonoscopy looks at the colon and the ileum, but it doesn't really tell you there's a whole bunch of small intestine in the middle that you don't see. And so sometimes you need to order capsule studies. It's a camera that you swallow or it's placed endoscopically in the small bowel and it goes through and takes a bunch of pictures. So sometimes you can miss those things, um, particularly in people with PIDD. And I have a couple of patients like that where we, you know, we've had to go and do a, dig a little deeper. And that leads me to my next question. I have two here who have severe reactions to having a colonoscopy. One gets super sick and is on antibiotics after it. One gets super sick on the medication. Both are looking at asking what are the alternatives to a colonoscopy? So it depends if you have, if you don't have underlying inflammation and you just want it for colorectal screening, Coligard is definitely available. I have zero financial interest in Coligard, but it is the kind of standard genetic test for colorectal screening that's available. There are some liquid biopsy things, some blood-based biopsies that are coming for colorectal screening. Um, these trials are in the process of being completed. So I would stay tuned for that. Um, if you have to have a colonoscopy, there are alternative preps that are available. Um, and usually that's something you just have to discuss. You don't always have to do a polyethylene glycol based prep. And I know I do have some patients that are allergic and, and our pharmacist usually works with those patients to come up with some alternative preps. Um, if you know you get sick, so for, for example, bacterial translocation can occur in normal patients who have colonoscopies. It's even more common in primary immune deficiencies that that can happen. So if you know that happens, let your doctor know. And sometimes we can preempt that by giving you antibiotics pre-colonoscopy. Um, some places don't use CO2. Some places use air. I, I find that the CO2 makes it a little bit better. You don't get as much, you know, distension of the colon. It's, it's less of an abiotic impact on, um, on the um, colonic mucosa. And so, and the CO2 gets absorbed. So that tends to be less of a problem. Um, so ask about that. Do you use air? Do you use CO2? You can sort of, so you can preempt some of those things. Is there research documentation somewhere that we can use to ask for an upper endoscopy every two years and to justify it to insurance companies? That is actually in that article. So the one that just got published, which is fantastic. Like I said, I was so excited to see that. I'm like, thank you, Frank. <laughs> he's a really good guy, by the way. Um, he's at Mayo. Um, I'm giving him some PR. So he- That's oh, right. Yeah, he, um, but anyway, so um, they- they, um, 
what was I going to uh, answer that? So yes, so it's in that article and it specifically has guidelines that say, if you have CVID, you need an initial endoscopy. If you have atrophic gastritis or intestinal metaplasia, you should have a repeat in a year. If you have dysplasia, you need to have a repeat in six months. So it's very clear. There's some very clear guidelines now, and this is the first time I've seen that. So I was very pleased to see that. Is there insurance companies? It's hard for them to argue because it's well documented. Um, <laughs> is there a relationship between gastroparesis and primary immune disorders? Um, I don't necessarily know the answer to that question. Definitely, there is a relationship between gastroparesis and enteric viruses, including COVID nineteen. So, if you've gotten viruses because, you know, GI viral infections because of your CV, CVID or your primary immune deficiency, and you you can develop gastroparesis as a result of that. So it's more of a result of getting an, a viral infection is usually the most common reason. And we definitely see a lot of that post-COVID-19. It's one of the bigger things we see. Interesting. Yeah. How common is appendicitis in people with PID and are the symptoms different from people without PI? I mean, I don't necessarily know the frequencies, but I would say, you know, it's probably fairly equal to the general population. Um, I would say symptoms can probably be fairly similar. You're going to have right lower quadrant pain because it's, it's going to behave the same way. Sometimes what gets confusing, and I've had this happen with patients, if you have overlapping, you know, um, PIDD related inflammatory bowel disease that sometimes can be very confusing and sometimes lead to delayed care. Um, there's also been some shifts in guidelines in terms of how, you know, people aren't necessarily going to surgery right away. Um, and they're getting IV, they're getting treated with IV antibiotics instead of going to surgery. So it definitely is a little bit murkier landscape. Okay. Any recommendations for treating acid reflux? Well, I would still recommend that, you know, there's the usual dietary guidelines, you know, go easy on the spicy food, go easy on the caffeine. Um, don't eat too late at night. Keep the head of your bed elevated. Those are kind of the standard gastroenterologist recommendation. I, there's nothing wrong with trying an H2 blocker first. Um, I still think that if you need, um, a proton pump inhibitor, you should take it. Um, I have plenty of patients in my practice that need long-term PPIs. I think we just have to be cognizant that, you know, PPIs aren't perfect and that there are other side effects associated with them that we have to keep an eye out for. Um, so you do need to be followed and your primary care doctor needs to keep an eye on that when you need long-term PPIs. I have several questions about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and PI. Can yep. you discuss that a little bit? So it doesn't, um, it's not a surprise. Remember, you, again, what like we talked about, um, because the gut barrier is often disrupted, because motility can be affected, because... Um, the cells that normally kind of traffic bacteria in the gut and keep it where it's supposed to be at aren't doing their job, you can get bacterial overgrowth um, in the small intestine. So that's not an uncommon thing that happens in primary immune deficiency. Um, and, you know, it's one of the, the things we, we frequently think about. 
in treating primary immune disorder. When we have people come in with bloating and abdominal pain and diarrhea, that's not explained by something else. So we're going to talk about some diarrhea questions. What do you do when you can't leave the house due to running to the bathroom every 20 minutes? And well, that's not good. That's, life. A, that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. That's a big problem. So number one, um, if you can get your doctor or if you can get somebody to pick up, um, you know, collection containers from your physician and have a family member take them and drop them off at the lab. That's super helpful, right? So that that can be helpful to make sure you don't have an infection. And I, you know, C. difficile, the viruses we talked about, um, you know, some of the the cryptosporidium, other giardia, other pathogens that are common. Um, if you have inflammation, sometimes, I mean, sometimes people need to be hospitalized for an evaluation. If you can't get out of the house and you can only make it to the ER, that's what we got to do. We got to do evaluated. Um, but it, it definitely is something if you're, if you're waking up at night, having bowel movements, that's a problem. If you can't leave the house, um, because you're having that many bowel movements, that's a problem. And you definitely deserve a more urgent workup. What is the best way to prevent flare-ups? That's a really broad question. So it depends on what it, what which type of flare-up you're having. If it's an inflammatory bowel disease flare-up, there's a whole host of things that can cause you to flare, right? Stress can cause you to flare. An infection, including COVID, can cause you to flare. Um, um, so you know, being careful about, you know, when you, you, I mean, honestly, wearing a mask can be helpful in terms of preventing some of those flare-ups. Um, if you know you have dietary triggers that can, that can cause a flare-up, I would avoid those. Um, making sure that you're consistent in taking your medicines. And sometimes insurance companies make that a challenge for a lot of people. Um, but, but if you can be consistent about taking your medicines, that can be helpful. Um, those are probably the biggest ones that I can think of. And then if you know, like stress triggers you figure out, are there things in my life that I can do to limit those stressors that are going to trigger my disease? Um, a question that's so, sort of related to the beginning, when I asked you about the GI doctor, this person has chronic diarrhea and CVID treatment difficult at best. Their GI doctor feels there's no connection to CDID as he finds no signs of an inflammatory process during a colonoscopy. How do I tell him there's still a possibility they are connected? Is that um, going back to that article? Is would that? Yeah, help I mean, I would, I would, I would probably refer back to that article, and I would, you know, sometimes it's worth it to get a second opinion. Um, and I don't think that's wrong, and I encourage patients to get second opinions. I mean, I've learned things from my colleagues. Um, so I think if you can, there's nothing wrong with that. And a good doctor will honor a second opinion. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, also going back to the IG infusions, this person writes, my son gets the gastro upset six hours after his infusion is like clockwork. Anything he can do to prevent that or help get through it. Gastro is stuff is more diarrhea than nausea, but sometimes it has been both. And another person says they get diarrhea. They do sub-Q infusions, which cause diarrhea. And is that normal to have them three days after infusions? 
it, you know, again, it's hard to know about cause and effect, but if it, if it's a consistent thing, you can always take some emodium around the time of the, you know, your IgG, your IG infusions or sub Q injections. And I would definitely discuss it with their immunologist. Yeah, I would talk right? it. Yeah. And I would talk to your physician about it, you know, talk to your, tell them what's happening. Yeah. Tell them what's happening. So they know. All right, so now let's go the other way with constipation. Yep. How common with constipation and motility issues? Is it a tendency to be constipated with PI or is it only diarrhea? It's not only diarrhea. You know, 20% of people with celiac disease, for example, can have constipation. So if you have celiac-like disease and you have primary immune deficiency, you can be constipated. And then again, we talked about post-viral things that can involve the colon as well. If you're, you know, a woman and you've had a number of children, you can get pelvic floor dysfunction and have, you know, have constipation related to that. So, you know, constipation has kind of a broad a broad differential diagnosis. So it's really important to kind of sit down and ferret out what is going on, you know, with each individual patient. And like we talked about with diarrhea then is like, how do you help when you are constipated and what do you use? It, you know, and it's going to vary from patient to patient. I mean, usually I tell patients, you know, start off with the simple stuff, drink plenty of water, as long as you don't have gastroparesis, try to get a water soluble fiber product. There's no reason you can't use a polyethylene glycol product as long as you're not allergic or don't have a problem with it, like Miralax, you know, once or twice a day, those are safe things to do. Um, definitely talk to your PCP or your gastroenterologist about it. Make sure that you involve them in that discussion. Um, but again, getting enough fiber in your diet, um, even prune, you know, prune juice is still a good thing. Um, not everybody likes it, but it still still works. Um, so I think you know those are always a challenge. And then as you get into problems with you know motility problems related to the pelvic floor, that those can be more complicated and often involve collaboration between a gastroenterologist and a colorectal surgeon and a urogynecologist to to kind of sort all of that out. PI's tolls have a reach far beyond those who suffer from a disease itself. We at IDF recognize that the loved ones, the parents, guardians, spouses, and other caregivers of people with PI have specific mental health needs that deserve to be met as well. That's why we host a monthly virtual caregiver support group. These sessions, which are led by a licensed mental health professional, allow PI caregivers to meet and explore shared experiences with other caregivers. To learn more and to register, visit primaryimmune.org support services or click the link in the show's description. Now let's talk about food and not prune juice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are the latest thoughts on going gluten-free, even if you've tested negative for celiac by biopsy? So there are some older papers, gosh, I want to say it's 2005 in, we call it the Red Journal, but it's the American Journal of Gastroenterology, that even people with like IBS-like symptoms could sometimes respond to a gluten-free diet. So I don't think there's any harm in doing it as long as you're not becoming nutritionally deficient and you're getting adequate, um, you're getting adequate nutrition. I think going gluten-free, if you feel better, why not? It doesn't hurt you. 
is gluten intolerance directly related to the PI or it, it could it, be and it might probably, not it, it, it may be or maybe not. Sometimes, you know, if you have gut barrier dysfunction in some of those peptides are, you know, make it, they're not getting digested properly and they're, they're making a good across, they could be causing issues. So I had food poisoning three times from sushi. Is sushi, sushi dangerous for CVID patients and immune system problems? And why do allergies to food change all the time? Um, so let me answer that two ways. I would probably go easy on the sushi if I had, C you know, with CBID, um, everything, you know, you may want to eat the cooked stuff. <laughs> and then the second part of that question is food allergies. So, and, and it's more gastrointestinal food sensitivities, um, really that occur. So anytime the gut barrier is there, so you have Normally you're supposed to have like three grams of IgA that's made a day and you have all these firewalls that are in place. So in CVID and other primary immune deficiencies, those firewalls kind of get disrupted. So suddenly you have food that's getting digested and some of these peptides are getting across that normally wouldn't. And so as a result, you can have reactions to those things. And, that, and that's probably a little bit of a simplistic explanation, but you may be inappropriately responding because you know, the apple cart has been upset. Makes sense. What was the name of the diet you mentioned towards the end of your presentation? Oh, it's called the specific carbohydrate diet. Um, and again, no financial relationship to this author, but the, the original book was called Breaking the Vicious Cycle. And the woman who wrote it, her name is Elaine Gottschall. Um, but it's, I, I use, I have a number of my IBD patients that like it. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation actually did a study where they compared it to a Mediterranean diet. Well, it wasn't any better than a Mediterranean diet. It wasn't harmful and definitely patients felt better on it. So I think, I think it's reasonable if you're looking for a diet that's nutritionally balanced and has at least some anecdotal benefit, it's one to think about and it's relatively gluten-free. And it kind of starts you off, you start off simply, you, you incorporate, you know, Greek yogurt and other things in, into the diet. So I have a lot of patients that like it. Cool. I'm confused about the speaker's comment on probiotics. That was the first thing my immunologist put me on along with my IG replacement. I have had other doctors mention this too. What is her reason for us not to take it? So I... The what I meant was, um, I'm not sure how much benefit they have. I don't think it'll necessarily hurt you. Although I have a lot of patients who come in with bloating and they're taking all these probiotics and I stop them and that gets better. Mm. The problem is, is we don't really know how some of them work. There's clear evidence in something called pouchitis. That's actually, there's good evidence for that but we don't really know enough about how they work to say that this truly has benefit. So in other words, the evidence isn't so great to say that. And, and, I'm, and I don't wanna be critical of other physicians because you know I don't think it's gonna hurt necessarily, but it may not help. And sometimes you may have some other symptoms related to, to those. Um, sometimes- What if you're on antibiotics? 
Yeah. I mean, if you're on antibiotics, I wouldn't take them while you're on antibiotics because the antibiotics are going to probably wipe them out anyway. Um, but I think, you know, after you're on antibiotics, you can do kefir, you could do, you know, some lactobacillus containing it, um, probiotics, but in general, I'm not, I'm not encouraging patients to go out, um, and just buy probiotics and take them all the time. Because again, it's an, it's an extra expense when you already have a disease that costs a lot of money and which may or may not have benefit. So that was my point. Okay. Yeah. Can IG replacement therapy help gastritis and diverticulitis? Um, I don't know that it necessarily helps gastritis and diverticulitis. I mean, diverticulitis typically needs to be, you know, often needs to be treated, especially in the setting of PIDD, um, with antibiotics. Gastritis is usually an inflammatory condition in the stomach that often, you know, is addressed using a PPI unless it's due to H. pylori. And then you're going to treat that underlying H. pylori with antibiotics and, and a PPI. So, I mean, I, I don't know that necessarily it would be helpful. Okay. In, in um, the case of diverticulitis, it's going to help you from having really bad things happen because of your diverticulitis. Right. Yep. So we're going to get into deficiency specific questions. Can a very okay. low IgA be the cause of fructose malabsorption and lactose intolerance? Well, so when the gut barrier is disrupted, you can actually get secondary deficiencies of these specific enzymes. So fructase and lactase. So that can happen. And once you treat the underlying condition that you can get, you have, you can have improvement. And along those lines, um, some of these oral IgG supplements, I actually prefer those over probiotics because they help improve chemical gut barrier. Um, so um, some of the oral IgG supplements, um, oral glutamine can all be helpful um, in improving those things. And then if if that if it's not a primary defi deficiency of those enzymes, some of those things will get better. Related to specific antibodies, what tests do you recommend to understand what's causing problems? My son has had, has sad and has a recurrent diarrhea and stomach pain and has lost 15% of his body weight in a year. So, um, I think in that case, he's really going to need just a very meticulous GI workup. You know, you're going to have to I don't think necessarily a blood test is going to help that. Um, usually I try to start thinking about when that happens is if he's lost this much weight and you've done an EGD and a colonoscopy, it's negative. I got to look at the small intestine. Mm. Um, and then I start thinking about what are disease modifiers? Well, does he have celiac disease? Does he have hereditary, is he Caucasian? And does he have hereditary alpha tryptosemia along with his SAD? So there's, there's, you start thinking about what are all the modifiers is, you know, does he have a chronic norovirus infection? So you, you really have to kind of go down that, that algorithm and work up the disease. Thank you. Yep. XLA, what percentage of XLA patients develop irritable bowel? And what is the proper treatment for infections such as C. diff, Giardia, Campylobacter? Yeah. So you're going to treat, um, let's start with the infection part of that question. Cause that's an easier question. I would say 
probably most people, I would say, I don't know the answer necessarily to XLA and IBS, but it wouldn't surprise me if a fair number of patients with XLA had IBS type symptoms, just because of, again, going back to gut barrier dysfunction and irritation. I think I showed you that slide that showed the barrier and the interaction, at least in the gut with the enteric nervous system. And so if you have those things that the enteric nervous system can get irritated and then you have I hate the word IBS, but you get visceral hypersensitivity related to having had infections or a disrupted gut barrier. Um, and then in the case of treatment, it really is going to be, treatment is going to depend on what bug you have. So if you have C. diff, you're going to start off with oral vancomycin and you're going to give people an appropriate course of oral vancomycin. We just saw that that FMT product came on the market. Again, that is something that I would discuss with your immunologist before I did it. Um, but I would start off with oral vancomycin. Um, you know, Campylobacter, um, Salmonella, Shigella, traditionally, we don't necessarily treat with antibiotics. However, people with primary immune deficiencies, the infectious disease doctor may choose to treat. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a risk benefit to that and you have to have a discussion. Um, usually, if, I'm gonna, if I have someone with Campylobacter or Salmonella, Shigella, I will actually talk to ID and just make sure we're in agreement with treatment strategies. Treatments for XLA and Crohn's. Oh, well, so I would say it depends, you know, where, where's the disease at? What's the extent and activity of disease? So is it large bowel disease? Is it small bowel disease? How old is the patient? There's going to be a lot of variables that I look at in relationship to that. You know, I think usually most people are going to, is it mild disease? Is it more severe disease? Again, you know, you're going to have to really evaluate what you're doing. And X, I have XLA, have had all sorts of tests, biopsies, fluoroscopies, small bowel follow-through, spent a week in Mayo Clinic, never received anything as a diagnosis beyond microscopic colitis. Been treated with butasonide with Vail yes. and lopramide every day, and they're still going at least six times a day. So if, okay, so if you have microscopic colitis that is not responding to standard treatment, so the standard treatment, that is the standard treatment. You start off with, you know, um, loperamide, you go to budesonide. If you don't respond to it, then you're sort of getting into what I call level four evidence. And there's no way we're going to have, we don't have enough people with microscopic colitis or lymphocytic colitis to really have this. So there's no randomized placebo controlled trials, but there's definitely case-based literature to support using things like azathioprine, um, tacrolimus I've used, I've used um, infliximab, I've used betalizumab. So you kind of get into those and you have to go down that treatment algorithm. And so a lot of times that involves getting to, and Mayo is a pretty good tertiary IBD place it may be worth it to go back to Mayo. I shouldn't say pretty good, they're excellent. Um, an excellent tertiary IBD place. Um, and so it, it'd be worth going back and say, hey, this really isn't working. You know, I have primary immune deficiency, which means I'm gonna have more autoimmunity. Would you consider starting me on one of these other therapies? Do you know enough to speak on granulomas that are in the liver? 
Um, it depends on a kind of, that's a, that's a very broad question because sometimes it can be due to sarcoidosis. Sometimes it can be due, you know, you can see it with like chronic granulomatous disease. There's, there's lots of conditions that have granulomas in the litter, liver, liver. Um, and so it just depends on what is the underlying disease process. Um, but I would recommend if you're really concerned about it, follow up with hepatologists. So you want to see somebody who their whole practice is committed to doing that. Good idea. Are swallowing issues related to CVID? Oh, sorry. We're going to go on to CVID questions. Okay. So no is swallowing, are swallowing issues related to CVID? So we'll make it, we're going to do it really simply. So if you have infection, yeah, absolutely. So if you have like CMV or HSV esophagitis, you can have swallowing issues. If you have Canada esophagitis, you can have swallowing issues. Um, so those would be infectious reasons. Um, it's pretty rare to have like you get. I have seen eosinophilic esophagitis overlap with primary immune deficiencies, so that could be a reason for swallowing problems. Um, you could have just heartburn. The most common reason actually for difficulty swallowing is heartburn or, or GERD. Um, so that, that could be a problem. Um, we talked about motility problems. Um, sometimes that can happen. Um, I was just trying to think about my primary immune deficiency contingent. I don't see that as often, but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, but I would start off with the simple things. Is there an infectious process? Does somebody have GERD? Those would be the two things I'd start off with. But I definitely think an EGD is warranted earlier rather than later. Is autoimmune pancreatitis often found associated with CVID and elevated IgG4? Yes. Yeah, you can see, you can definitely see um, autoimmune pancreatitis um, in association with um, IgG4 levels. Um, and there's a lot of overlap between some of these auto-inflammatory conditions or autoimmune conditions. So it wouldn't be atypical to, to see that. Um, and I think we're getting a little smarter sometimes. Sometimes there's other things that are going on and what you think is an autoimmune thing is not. And, you know, my, my patients have done a really good job at making me a better doctor, <laughs> um, Sometimes I think it's an autoimmune, you know, pancreatitis and, and there's something else going on. So it's, it's important to be really aware of that. Um, but IgG4 can be elevated in, in autoimmune pancreatitis. How does all this head spinning info relate to IgG over 10,000? So what kind of GI symptoms with somebody with an IgE level? Of over 10,000. Oh, unless they're talking about like, you know, it, it depends. So this, I think we're getting into like, you know, um, Job syndrome, kind of hyper IgE syndrome, um, stat gain of function mutations. Um, you definitely can see GI. I mean, I, I have a number, I have a couple of patients that have, you know, um, stat gain of function mutations and, and elevated. I don't think I have a I have one, I have one hyper IG patient in my, in my practice. Um, but most of the stuff that I see tends to be more inflammatory, you know, in the skin and in the GI tract. And another question about the liver. What do you do for an enlarged liver that is extremely painful? 
the first thing you want to do is get a liver ultrasound. Make sure that there, there are no lesions in that liver that's explaining why it's increased, excuse me, and that the blood flow to the liver is not compromised. Um, because one of the things you have to worry about is our, our, you know, is there a blood clot that's preventing adequate drainage of the liver? So if that's, you know, if that's a problem, you definitely need to get the liver imaged and make, figure out why it's enlarged. And sometimes you may even need to biopsy the liver if those, that testing isn't revealing. And what are your thoughts on unexplained weight loss? If you have normal endoscopies and colonoscopies and they're negative for infection and the doctor just says oh, that's just because of your CVID. Yeah, I would say I would dig a little bit deeper. Um, I would look for second, you know, um, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. So get a fecal elastase. I think I included that on one of the slides. Um, so look for exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Again, look at the small bowel. Don't forget about the small bowel. It's very, it's not uncommon that people just kind of forget about that. Um, check other things. Um, is your TSH normal? You, did you suddenly develop thyroid disease that you didn't know about? So there's other reasons that people can lose weight that you have to consider that are outside of the GI tract. And unfortunately, we're going to go with the last question. You talked about PPIs and being on them for a long time. This person states their mother and grandmother died of stomach cancer. She's been on them since she was 38. Mm -hmm. How worried, you know, and I know a lot of people are very concerned about being yeah. on them for a long period of time, but yet can't function or are not comfortable going off of them, going right. off of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, again, this is where you have to have a close relationship with your GI doc. And really, if you have a family history of stomach cancer, you need regular evaluations. You've got to have regular endoscopies to make sure that you're not, you know, developing stomach cancer. Um, you know, if you don't need them every day, you could go to every other day. Um, I can't afford to not take my PPI every day, but you know, some people don't need it every day so they can take it when they need it. Um, we used to think you had to take it every day. Um, I think in reality, you can take it kind of as you need it. So, And yeah. any last words of wisdom? There are so many questions and I wish, I wish we could answer them all, but you know, words of great wisdom, questions. Thank they you, were Beth. very good. And, and yeah. there's even more that are really good and people who desperately need help and desperately want answers to their questions. So any pearls of wisdom for those patients? So I, I would just say, um, be, be, you know, when you go to your physician, be methodical in the questions that you ask, you know, put together, put together a timeline. Um, there's a couple of folks who I know are on this call that are excellent at doing this, put together a timeline of your symptoms. Um, you know, if you have a doctor that isn't used to seeing primary immune deficiencies, um, you can, you can actually, um, you know, provide them with some information, um, on those things. If you're, you're really struggling, try to get to, um, you know, an academic medical center or a tertiary care facility where you can get the things that you need and just realize that this is a shifting landscape. You know, we just, part of the reason I presented the COVID data is just to show you that, you know, the science is moving forward and that we're learning something new every day. 
Um, so just know that the, the treatment options you have today may be very different tomorrow and may be significantly improved um, because of the questions you ask um, and your involvement in societies like the IDF. Um, and I thank you all for, for being so, so involved. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically and leave us a review on iTunes so that others may discover this podcast as well. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. For more information on how to get engaged in advocacy on behalf of the PI community, check out IDF's Patient Advocacy Engagement Toolkit at primaryimmune.org slash patient toolkit. If you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.